everyone, and welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. I'm your host, Tom Mueller. On this podcast, we talk all things crisis management, and we do that through interviews, storytelling, and lessons learned from crisis leaders. With me today is my co-host, Mark Mullen. Mark, welcome. Hi, Tom. Glad to be here. All right. Hey, with us today, we have a, a, a very special guest from the shipping world. Uh, Jeff Johnson. Jeff has a long history working in the shipping business, and he'll fill us in on that in just a minute, uh, but uh, started off sailing on ships on the West Coast, and then uh, currently today is serving as president of the Cook Inlet Barge and Tug Company out of Alaska. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Um, Yeah, happy to be here. I know you're a native Alaskan, so does it feel good being back in Alaska to work uh, with the Tug and Barge Company? It is. Uh, you know, I've been blessed across my career to work work across the world, um, but I've always had my sights on returning home, and and it's nice to be home. And for the last four years, I've been living the dream, running one of the greatest tug companies in the United States, and living in Alaska. Well, that just sounds like as as good as it gets, right there. Well, Jeff, uh, one of the things we like to do on this podcast is is let guests sort of introduce yourself. So if you're meeting somebody for the first time and just doing a, a quick uh, intro of, of your experience and, and life, what would uh, what would that sound like? Well, I'd probably start with uh, being fourth generation Alaskan, raised up here, uh, pioneering families a pioneering family that really ventured into the commercial fishing world. And I started as a commercial fisherman. Um, my love of the sea began there and I worked my way up sailing on oil tankers around the world, but primarily U.S. West Coast out of Valdez. Um, opportunities then as I grew older and had a family to to come ashore and take on various shore roles, both based in Washington State, Houston, Alaska, and in Singapore. So most recently, uh, I, I left a role in Singapore four years ago to come home and be back in Alaska and loving every minute of it. Well, good. And, you know, we're going to delve into your crisis experience a little bit uh, as we continue our conversation. And uh, but I want to just kind of uh, start uh, just kind of ask you, what does leading in a crisis bring to mind? for you what does it take to be able to lead in a crisis in your view well being from the shipping uh, industry uh, it, it takes it takes a number of things for instance the the crisis may not be in the location you're at so it takes several things to help one one uh, i think the biggest key is communications communications across all your help all the impacted individuals uh, every responder and regulators is key. If, without communications, um, the crisis is, is, uh, becomes just ultimately harder. You know, I, I look back on, on what has helped me, and I'll be honest, be, a, a sense of humility when you're a crisis leader because you are working with folks that have been impacted potentially. You're working with excellent folks trying to correct the situation, and again, regulators and, uh, and politicians. So you want to, you want to, show and believe that you're doing all you can that's in the best interest for everybody so you know that communication is coupled with humility but you got to throw flexibility in as well so every crisis changes daily sometimes hourly and you just have to be ready to to shift 
change your change your plan of attack and um, make sure you get the team ready behind you to, to do that. Those are kind of the three things that I can think of. The humility aspect of that is uh, is something worth repeating here because it's not something you hear talked about a lot when we think about incident commanders or crisis leaders. And Jeff, I know you've been an incident commander for incidents over the course of your career, uh, but it's it's fascinating to hear you touch on that because as I think back on leaders I've worked with, you know, who I really enjoyed working with, that was one of the key factors there was the humility that they brought into that job and into that room. Everyone was important. And, you know, they just checked their ego at the door and were super humble, even as they were managing a very complex organization and response. I agree. The the genuine, the genuineness is, is important. Um, you know, you have to want to be a crisis leader and you have to want to care. And um, you're right. Some folks um, may, may struggle with that, but I think you said checking your ego at the door is absolutely one of the couple of things you're going to hang up as you walk in, because again, you're dealing with folks that are impacted either, either to a large degree or a small degree, but you want to make sure that you're doing all you can to help them and then keeping your folks safe while you help. So if you in the line of taking care and helping those younger folks come in aboard, what are two or three things that you would really recommend that uh, a young communicator should do to be ready to respond in the crisis? You know, it's funny. You, you, you may not know you're in a crisis until you're in one uh, in various roles you may have. And, and I, I've often helped coach and maybe mentor folks in their daily jobs. You're trained in crisis techniques and crisis management, and, and even in the U.S., the, the ICS system. You can use that in, in daily jobs to, to help in the system and actually drive maybe better outcomes. So if, if you're in an operations group, maybe in a, in a refinery or a factory, uh, and something goes wrong, you can actually go through the steps of ICS and you can resolve that issue instantly there with the folks you have, and it's a training opportunity. I think it's important also you know, tips for, for folks coming up is, is to swap roles frequently if, if you're active in, in the incident command system. So just because you run an operations team, maybe uh, at a refinery or again, a factory, doesn't mean maybe you're the best suited person for an operations role on an ICS. You know, logistics may be where you should be and you may enjoy it more. So I think it's good to swap roles and kind of learn where your niche is. You know, we all have emergency crisis plans in place from business continuity to oil spill response to, to earthquake and, and other natural disaster plans. And it's really important for folks to know those plans. I mean, we have them, they're on the shelf. But pull them down, look through them, because a lot of smart people help put those together. And they're really a usable guide for, for folks to, to grab and go. So a lot of companies, I don't think, do that enough. And for, for young folks wanting to, or for new folks in the crisis uh, community, that's a good thing to do is to start with knowing the, the response plans that are in place. Great. Glad, glad you could share that. So again, the first one is try to coordinate uh, working on ICS on a daily basis so that when the real thing comes, you're already used to the structure. 
um, swap roles so you find your best fit, which is great advice. And then to know the plans you have. And, and you're absolutely right. Every client I've worked with has plenty of plans. Uh, most times they're not refreshed or they're not, they're not read. And so many times they're not actually even coordinated. So I agree with you on all three points there for not just new people in the field, but it's a good discipline for everybody. So Jeff, let's talk PIOs for a minute here, public information officer or liaison officers. As an incident commander, kind of looking back on your experiences, you know, what are the characteristics that you think make for a good public information officer or liaison officer, or even an ops section chief for that matter? Again, I'll start with, you know, what I said earlier around humility. A PIO really is, is kind of leading the outward facing bits and pieces of a response. And, and this is what the people out there will see when the operations teams and uh, the command staff are grinding away in a, a command post maybe. So, you know, the PIO is an important role. And I think one of the biggest keys there is, and we've seen it in responses, we've seen it when we watch something on television is knowing your data. Uh, there's a lot of information inside a command post and knowing where to go and to drive consistent use of data and clean data, accurate data, it ultimately will help that, that PIO in the end and the ops team. And I've seen chaotic times in, in, in my past where you know different data is used or different data at different times throughout the day is used and so numbers don't match up, which leads to concerns or angst amongst maybe citizens or politicians or regulators. Yeah, there's probably a whole episode around data management within a unified command or an incident management team. You know, just keeping track of the vessels deployed, the boom deployed, the, the people deployed, uh, all of that. It, it's a huge logistics challenge, but one that the ICS is sort of designed to manage, but a huge challenge nonetheless. I think uh, the, the last bit for all three of the roles you, you, you mentioned, you know, listen, right? I, I think listening is key. You know, we've, we've seen training films in the past where maybe uh, PIOs might not have listened. You know, if you can stay as long as you possibly can, answer every single question three or four times, at the end of the day, the response will go easier, the community will feel better. But if we rush through the communication side of providing information to the public, it usually leads to more angst at the end of the day. Jeff, one other uh, issue that you, you bring to mind there is just the preparation aspects of doing a press conference and that, because when you're an incident commander and potentially going out to stand in front of a phalanx of television cameras, being prepared for that is uh, quite a challenge. And in my experience, in most incidents, there's just not a lot of time to prepare an incident commander for a press conference. But I was curious your experience uh, in that for the, you know, the incidents and exercises that you've worked. Uh, did you did you feel prepared to step out and do that? So I'd say uh, there were times where I did and probably more times where I didn't, honestly. Uh, but, you know. I look back on what happens during, you know, a, 
a busy day in the command post. And I think one of the common issues we see is your, your command staff, be it federal, state, if you're in the U.S., um, and of course the responsible party, they get sidelined into continual stream of meetings. One of the things I always like to do is book time on the meeting schedule for us to be out and on the floor and talking and seeing what people are working on. Look at the graphics that are being developed. Look at the information sheets that are out that are being developed by the teams on the floor. Because ultimately, when you get asked the question uh, in a press conference, that extra 15 minutes giving yourself just being on the floor and, and talking to folks and understanding what they're working with will go a long way in, in helping you in a press conference, much more than you know, handing, being handed a, you know, a couple of pages of bullet points to repeat. I think you really need to know the response and know what's happening, which is difficult at times given the, the, uh, the stress and the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. And the the number of meetings that incident commanders required to attend on a daily basis. So schedule or you know calendar management is a is a really important point that you've raised there. And we coach that into um, sections all the time as if you've got something that you're going to need the incident commander in, you need to get that on the schedule so we can make time for it and then make time for preparation as well and you're you're really talking about what used to be called the hewlett packard way where it was management by wandering around just, yeah, just absolutely <laughs> enough time to know what's happening um, i made a little note while you were talking because from from what you're saying it's possible that when the jick brings up uh, a press release or a new a new statement that as you're describing, it's possible that that may mention some things that you might not have seen before if you're not out there seeing what's being being developed and so on. So all the more important that that review and approval process occurs. And I'll, I'll have a question about that later. But real quickly, um, you've talked about what are the characteristics of a good PIO or section leader, but let's, let's flip the table a bit and say, what are some of the mistakes you've seen made and some of your exercises are in the actual events, either by PIO or by the incident commander, or again, as Tom mentioned, by a section. No names, of course. Yeah, yeah, no names, but I think they're all lessons learned, right? So at the end of the mm -hmm. day, well, well, I'd have been deemed a mistake or, or one of those I wish I would have done better moments. Uh, you know, I think not answering questions or not staying long enough to answer a full gambit of questions. You know, when, when a press conference is given 20 minutes, but there's 30 minutes worth of questions in the room, you know, that's real important that you, you might want to stick around and, and be able to field some of those further questions because at the end of the day, that'll help, again, with the public information. So I, I think that's one of the bigger issues I've seen is, is we rush through a press conference and we leave people wanting more. That bites us in the backside at the end of the day because in a vacuum, people will, will come up with their own information. Right. So I, I think that's one of the, the bigger issues I've seen. And then you know, I talked a bit about the data, you know, knowing, knowing where to get the data and, and consistent use of it. I think back to a, to a time where I was in, a, in an actual response and there was a team of folks walking around a very large command post. And you know they they were federal officials, 
and they came up to my section. I was, I think I was in logistics at the time. And they said, we need this information now for POTUS. And well, POTUS isn't a word I've used very much in my career, honestly. And I realized that, you know, here at two in the afternoon, our data set might've been set at eight in the morning and they'll be coming out at 6 p.m. at night. But, you know, they're looking at information to give to the president that is gonna be off cycle for the information that we've been sharing publicly. So in that moment, I quickly went and found the PIO and said, hey, we got people asking, can you help usher them through? But they just wandered around as, they, as they're allowed to and came across our graphics boards in our little section and were, were writing things down feverishly. And across the day, that information had changed since we'd last posted it publicly. So that's one of the fears that, that I've seen come true. It's interesting, the, you know, the sort of demands for information are constant, but the organization that's running the response, uh, you know, the management team, they've got to be able to have time to develop that information, verify it, and then make it available for public information uses and that. And that's, that's a forever challenge. Uh, within a command post, right, is is getting the latest information and verified information. Um, so there's real challenges there. And that's why we often fall back on the infamous 209 form, which hope, hopefully is updated twice a day. What What's your experience with, uh, you know, with that, Jeff, in terms of you know, information accuracy and being able to get accurate information, especially early on? Well, it's it's it, it, in the early stages, you know, in the reactionary stage, information's flowing in quickly in some cases, and in some cases not at all. You may have a, right. a section of a response where where we've got live TV feed, we've got you know people on the ground calling in, and then there might be a section that's quite remote, and we haven't heard from folks in four hours. So it's kind of a mixed bag what we've seen. But, you know, at the end of the day, the challenge is, of course, is how do we how do we react and report that out and, and deal with it? And again, in the reactionary stage, when we're first standing up, it's it's tough, but you have to recognize it. I, I think, you know, as we go into response and we settle in, you know, having that agreement with your if you're in the U.S., the, the unified command as to times for data approvals and which data set is correct. Like you mentioned the 209 form and getting that approval amongst the unified command and the agencies that are there, that this will be the Bible of information goes a long way. So uh, I've seen in the past where maybe we rush through that and nobody agrees that this is the set of stone tablets that we'll use moving forward of information. And it does create hardship in the future if we don't. Right. I actually saw that in one actual event down here on the California coast. Um, the Jack actually got permission from Unified Command to turn the 209 into a daily update listing that you could keep multiple dates on. So um, stakeholders could look and see the difference in birds or boom and so on. And it became automatic in that as quickly as Unified Command accepted the new 209, it was immediately available to post. And that seemed to be really helpful because it then gave more time at that press conference to talk about why all those events were occurring or why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and it, it seemed to really help with that. Hey, Jeff, a uh, little uh, 
softball question here. What's as you think about as you think about the incidents you've worked and the exercises you've worked, I wonder if you have kind of a pet peeve, things that bother you that you see, sort of behaviors you see in an exercise or even in an actual response that people should watch out for and try to avoid. Yeah, and and I think fortunately my my list isn't very long. I mean, I think there's an external piece that most folks are disgusted with, and that's where, where, where maybe we see fraud occurring. But I don't want to speak to that. I think for me, one of my biggest pet peeves is, you know, we assemble a structure of, let's talk unified command, and, and you've got the right people in the room. And those are folks that, in all senses, are delegated all the authorities they need to help with the response and make the response move forward. And more often than not, we slowly find that maybe it's not the right people in the room, and maybe that FOSC or state on-scene coordinator has to make calls before they can make decisions. And that really, while, while we allow it, it, it does slow things down and it does kind of muddle the effectiveness of the Unified Command. So if, if I could just put one kind of in the ground around what I think upsets me a bit, uh, like you said, a pet peeve, it would be having the wrong people in decision-making roles that aren't delegated the authority to do so. How about in crisis exercises? Uh, anything you see in exercises? And one of, the, one of the things I'll throw out is when people just play to the exercise. You know, they're in the room and they're doing things but they're not really taking it seriously as a good way to practice. Yeah, I agree with you, Tom. You see that regularly, and you see it across all all groups, command and general staff. You see it from regulators, politicians, you know, responders. It's a great opportunity to roll up our sleeves, figure out what we're not doing well, and fix it. But oftentimes, you know, those drills are unfortunately they're graded i guess is the best way to say it so under an environment where we're practicing as hard as we can but there's a pass fail component to it a lot of times you will see you know maybe some folks playing to the microphone so to speak but you know if you dive deep you'll see that maybe they're not doing what they should be doing um so so if it's if it's a pass fail environment sometimes you lose some of that training credibility I get it. Drills are required. Drills, you know, prove your response capabilities. But, you know, oftentimes we forget that they're training environment and we can learn from them. So I usually try to stress that, but there are times when it's truly a pass-fail. Can we ask you one more thing about wearing your incident commander hat? Um, PIO shows up with a, a document for approval. What advice can you give for getting that approval process to happen in one swoop instead of present, revise, present, revise, present, revise, the, the death cycle that we can get into? Oh, yeah, it's a spiral. Uh, I've seen it, and it's frustrating for everybody. I, one, of the, one of the things that in, in the shipping side of the business that I used and I shamelessly stole from somebody else was we we delegate authorities as incident commander. We had several deputies. So uh, in my past, we'd always have a command staff deputy and a general staff deputy. So if operations or you know, logistics had questions and maybe incident commanders 
on a site visit or in a meeting, that person has full delegation and authority to respond as if they were the incident commander. And what that does is that helps, especially for the deputy incident commander on command staff, it helps work with the PIO. So by the time it walks through the command, uh, unified command room, it's done. And we encourage in, in responses and in drills that our colleagues maybe on the unified command do the same. And for the most part, they try. But I think sometimes that slowdown process occurs maybe at a state level where they haven't followed that same practice. Mm-hmm. We, we like to think it was the best practice to have multiple deputies just filling in and, and sorting things so that it did speed that process up. And, and when it worked, it worked great. It worked really right. great, Mark. Right. Well, then that's also training your next incident commanders. I was at an exercise in Texas with your guys' alma mater where one of the injects were command, um, the command had gone up for an overflight and their plane was forced down. So they weren't back in incident command in time for the next round of decisions and briefings and so on. And that was a very significant wrench in the works because a lot of people in the room just weren't ready to step into those roles. It's a great test. And in that moment, you quickly find who is ready as well, right? Um, right. So uh, I'd encourage that. I've, I've seen exercises, thinking back to my shipboard days, where maybe the, the chief engineer who's accountable for you know starting the fire pump doesn't show up. So now the second engineer, third engineer has to figure it out. So I think it's a, it's a great training tool to use. But yeah, sometimes you, know, you, you either show the world that you're not ready or you see some greatness in some of your folks. Jeff, I had the the opportunity to work a very large crisis where the incident commander actually followed that process you just talked about, where they appointed deputies. And I was just so thankful and so amazed at how that simplified the approval process because there was somebody always available then to get the, the latest FAQ or latest press release approved and we could get it out the door quickly. So I really grab onto that as a best practice. And thanks for sharing that and reminding me about that, because that's something that I'd like to see more of in more uh, exercises and actual unified commands. Like Mark alluded to, it, it kind of kills two birds with one stone. Uh, you know, you're training your future deputy. Your deputies are now training to be incident commanders. And, you know, you don't frustrate all the process and slow it down needless, um, needlessly. So one final question for you here today, Jeff, I was thinking about, you know, sort of international incident planning, and you mentioned your uh, stint working in Singapore. And of course, uh, shipping, you know, involves vehicles that are moving from port to port. And so you've got to be prepared to manage an incident kind of anywhere around the world that a ship might be going. Um, How how difficult, how challenging is that process? And what did you find uh, that sort of worked for you as you were thinking through those issues? Yeah, I remember uh, just having a conversation with a refinery manager one time. And and I said, you know, when you went to bed at 10 o'clock last night, you knew where the refinery was. And when you woke up at eight in the morning, it was still right where you left it. And unfortunately for us, that, that ship moves um, and they move all over the world. So you're absolutely right that the challenges are huge for us in that 
from a shipping company perspective, typically it's it's small groups of folks in teams located globally. So in so in the U.S., maybe a shipping company might have you know 20 people in an office, and maybe in Europe they might have the same, and maybe in Asia. That's not a lot of people, you know, spread across those those three areas that can instantly help, and not all of them are trained to respond. So what you really need are good partners, good organizations that you've contracted with and um, visit them as much as you can. I've always liked to be able to know, you know, my regulators, but in a global scale, that's really not possible. You, you can't really go around the world and meet everybody. You may end up sitting across the table from in an incident. So I think it's important to have good partners. You know, if you've got um, oil spill response organizations with global um, reach, they do a lot of that for you. So be active with those. And, and responses aren't typically, it, it could be anything from, you know, a natural disaster to, you know, an environmental um, incident. But we've even had, you know, human issues where maybe somebody unfortunately passes away while on board a ship, maybe of natural causes. But, you know, having the right connections to respond to that you know, it's, it's no different than a, a big response you might see in an environment because you've got to figure out how to move people around the world, how to respond. And you end up with a very large Rolodex of response agencies that will help. And I think that's the biggest piece to it. If you're part of a larger organization, you can really lean on other business units within it. So I'm thinking naturally, maybe an oil company. And, and you can rely on employees maybe in another country to help. But, you know, in most cases, shipping companies just don't have that. And they're, they're running 20 ships around the world and they might have a total shoreside crew of 20. So it becomes a challenge. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff. Really appreciate you taking time and sharing some of your many experiences uh, in the shipping world as an incident commander. Thank you again. Well, thanks. Yeah, Tom and Mark, it's my pleasure. And it's, uh, it's an important topic, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing this. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast. We'll be back next week with some new content for you. Please like and subscribe this and tell your friends about us as well. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.